On a summer night of 1991, in the dim beam of a train's headlight, 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr.'s body lay across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by the oncoming train. In the newest season of Counterclock, my look into his death has taken me beneath the surface of the place I know as home and has plunged me into the details of a mystery so big and so bizarre that it feels like fiction, but it's not. It's reality. And the reality is exactly how Doug Wagg Jr. died and why he was found so far from where he lived has never been answered. I thought I knew all about the depths of law enforcement scandals in my home state, but this case has shown me that I couldn't have been more wrong. I've uncovered a web of small town secrets, a string of crimes, missing people, and so many other suspicious deaths that I've had to rethink everything I thought I knew about where I'm from. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Is it just me, or is it getting really hard to figure out the best way to save for retirement? Fidelity can help you find clarity so you can save the best way for you. With a free personalized plan, goal tracking, and timely insights, you'll be set to take on retirement your way. Get started at fidelity.com slash future. Expenses charged by your investments and other costs and fees associated with trading or transacting in your account apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC. True or false? Walmart has eye care. True. Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. I wrote a story about Svetlana Stalin, Stalin's beloved daughter. She's, you know, the Sasha Obama of the Kremlin. And then she has a falling out, you know, at about the time of World War II, where she falls in love with a Jewish man who then Stalin sends to a gulag. And so eventually she comes to, she defects. She has enough of the Soviet Union, she defects. There's a lot of heartbreak. There's a lot of trauma. A lot of us have complicated feelings about our fathers, but many of them are bad. Few of them killed 30 million people. And so I wrote it. And they never ran it. And actually, they killed it twice. From Justine Harmon and Audio Chuck, this is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. Episode 9 The Stranger. Nick Thompson is a pretty serious guy. He's the former editor in chief of Wired and the current CEO of The Atlantic, which means he has ideas and also solutions, very rare in editorial types. Nick's also a devoted runner, a topic he routinely discusses on his Instagram and LinkedIn and in interviews. I do think that my running is very closely connected to the way I work. There's a psychological theory that discipline in your hobby detracts from the rest of the day, and there's psychological theory that the opposite is true, and I'm very much in that camp. Do you think that Nick likes his runs like he likes his journalism? Whether it's long, running or anything else, the man holds the American record for running 50 kilometers faster than any guy over 45 ever. If you were wondering, that's 31 miles, five more than a marathon, at under six minutes a mile. And he's actually getting faster as he gets older, which suits Nick just fine. 
For over 20 years, Nick has kept pace with the ever-changing media industry. I started working as a magazine editor in 1999, so that would be 23 years. The Washington Monthly, that was really my first job in journalism. I was 24 years old, and it was a funny job where you got a lot of responsibility and you had to work insane hours, like 100 hours a week, and you weren't paid much. It was a very, it was a very intense job, and I can't remember the first time I had to tell an author that we were killing his or her story, but it happened all the time. Then he honed his story skills at Wired, the dense tech mag, during its absolute heyday. And then I was an editor at Wired from 2005 to 2010. It was at Wired that Nick became well-versed in the fine art of magazine murder. So that's probably the era where we killed the most stories because we had eight features editors. We didn't have a website where we were publishing stories. You're only running four features a month. You have all these editors. So people are assigning stories that don't run. So I think the reason why there's so many more killed stories in the you know period up to, let's say, 2012 is that magazine publishing is much more profitable. So you can hire many more editors. You can assign stories. You can assign higher word rates to writers. You can take risks. You can assign 10 stories knowing that only three will run because you can afford it. In 2006, if an advertiser wants to reach people who care about tech, what are they going to do? They're going to buy an ad and wired. Nick was raised on hard and fast rules, editorial hierarchies, and fiercely competitive editors vying for meaty back-of-book real estate by any means necessary. Take the absolutely unhinged Wired Magazine pitch meetings back when Nick was a senior editor circa 2007. Wired pitch meetings circa 2007. Toxic? No, just incredibly complicated. I mean, the short version, no, they weren't toxic at all. They were amazing. They were absolutely toxic. What we did is all the editors, so I was one of the senior editors, all the editors would write up their pitches, and then the pitches would be distributed to the entire staff, and then everybody on staff would grade the pitches, and then there would be a meeting where the grades would be presented and the standard deviations, and then the pitches would be presented by the editor in reverse order of the scores. And so... The idea was to create democracy under autocracy, right? So the editor-in-chief still makes all the choices. But you have a little bit of democracy. You can kind of knock out the stories that score terribly, give an easy green light to the ones that score wonderfully, right? Because in a conversation, right, if you have 10 people sitting around a table, you could have an idea that nine like and one doesn't, and it could seem like it's one-to-one because only two people are talking. Or you could have an idea that you know, nine don't like and one does like it and can seem like one to one, right? But if you actually have the votes, it's very helpful. The standard deviations help too. The problem with that process that we had at Wired is that, you know, your pitch scores the lowest in the group and you feel pretty bad. You know, I pitched all the time and I like I feel like at one point there was like a year, every single meeting I had the lowest scoring pitch. But this is at a time where I was doing pretty well. Like I signed a bunch of stories. That did, I like signed a story that became the movie Argo. Like I signed a lot of good stories. I got an idea. They're a Canadian film crew for a science fiction movie. That's right. Argo. We all fly out together as a film crew. The man pitched the magazine article that eventually became the Oscar-smoking movie Argo with Ben Affleck. 
but the pitch barely got greenlit. It scored only a 4.0 on Wired's 1-6 scale of editorial excellence. It came in fifth out of 12 ideas that day. You know, I had a lot of stories with very low scores. So Nick's stories weren't always the easiest to digest. They were more like long yarns you had to unspool. And besides, Nick had more to worry about than Machiavellian pitch meetings. Because outside of the hallowed halls of Wired, he had stumbled down another decades-old rabbit hole. While going through the personal papers of his grandfather, Paul Nitza, a famously bullish Cold War strategist and national security expert, he'd come up with something, or rather someone, unexpected. I was writing a book about George Kennan and Paul Nitza. It's called The Hawk and the Dove. It's a history of America during the Cold War. And Kennan was a Russian scholar. He's the, he's the dove in the story. And he had had a very close relationship with Svetlana. And so I had, le- I had never heard her name before I began working on the book. And I learned that she was living in America, which is, of course, an interesting fact. Stomp's daughter lives in America. Hang on, because we're going to move pretty fast here. 20 years ago, after he delivered the long telegram in 1946, effectively kicking off the Cold War, former U.S. Ambassador George Kennan personally helped Joseph Stalin's only daughter, Svetlana, defect to the U.S. And her arrival was major news. She holds this big press conference and denounces the Soviet Union, the legacy of her father, and his successors. For for those horrible things, killing people, injustice, I feel that responsible for this. The May 1st, 1967 cover of Newsweek is Svetlana, grinning above the headline, Stalin's daughter chooses the U.S. She's 41. She's left her children behind. All of a sudden, she's an American superstar. And she plays it fast and loose. She gets in a relationship. She gets upset. She drives her car through the person's living room. She goes out. She joins, I don't know, she would call it a cult. Other people would call it a community. And she writes a book that becomes a bestseller. According to the New York Times, Svetlana's 1967 autobiography, 20 Letters to a Friend, earned her more than $2.5 million. But in that cruelly American way, the media quickly moved on from the story. And then she sort of runs out of money, runs out of luck, and ends up stuck in the middle of Wisconsin. And uh, 40 years later, when Nick's researching his book on the Cold War, she's living off welfare at a home for elderly women in Wisconsin. See, I told you, long yarns. I wrote her a letter, and because I had written her about George Kennan, not about her father, she wrote back. Eventually, Nick picked up the phone. Hello? Hello, Ms. Peters? Yes? Hi, it's Nick Thompson, writing the book about Kennan. How are you? Oh, hello, hello. Fine, fine. Is this an okay time to talk? The path to retirement is different for everyone. And as life changes, so do priorities. Fidelity can help you get where you want to go. With a free personalized plan, goal tracking, and timely insights, you'll be set to take on retirement. Whether you're saving for it or already living in it. Get started at fidelity.com slash take on. Expenses charged by your investments and other costs and fees associated with trading or transacting in your account apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC. True or false? Walmart has eye care. 
true. Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. This is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. Back in 2006, while researching his book on America's involvement in the Cold War, Nick Thompson had stumbled upon an unlikely source for insight into former U.S. Ambassador George Kennan. Is this an okay time to talk? Nick played some of his tapes yeah, for Killed. I haven't woken you up this time? No, no, no. Okay. no. Just a minute, I will put on glasses and I will take the text, which I might have forgotten. Uh-huh. <laughs> just a minute, just a minute. Uh, do you have other questions or, or what? When you're writing a history about a person, you can get bored doing the interviews because you hear the same stories in the same way. And then I wrote to Svetlana and she just, she was brilliant. Svetlana was a dream subject. She lived to talk and she cut right through the BS. She saw the real George Kennan more than most observers. She saw what he wanted. She saw what he needed. She saw the tensions in his life. That was why I kept writing to her. Even when I was done writing my book about Kennan and I had nothing more to learn from her about Kennan, I wanted to know what she thought about everybody. Which is why, about a year later, Nick pitched his not at all wired story to Vanity Fair. So let, let me tell you uh, what you wrote about that magazine. What is, what is the name of it? Uh, Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair. It, it sounds to me rather strange. Vanity Fair. Like 19th century something, you know. Vanity Fair. Well, it's been well, around for a long time. And so the initial pitch to Vanity Fair was, hey, did you know Stalin's daughter, you know, lives out in a sort of retirement home in the middle of Wisconsin. I'm going to go see her. What do you think? They were into it. And it was initially assigned by Vanity Fair as a, I don't know, 600-word little piece. And so I wrote it. Until they weren't. And they never ran it. Pieces killed. 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 Dead. But what happened is after I went out and visited her for that first piece, we started just writing letters. And I ended up getting hundreds of letters from her. And some of them were wonderfully evocative about her life, about her father. Some of them she was incredibly belligerent to me. Some of them she was kind of like a grandmother to me, giving me advice on my marriage. It was a very funny, interesting, emotionally fraught series of conversations we had. I think she wanted me to marry her daughter. So we had this very intense correspondence. I was not going to marry her daughter. I was happily married to my wife, have been since the very beginning of this process. In any case, she clearly, she didn't have a lot of people to talk to, and she liked talking to me. Uh, and I liked talking to her, not just as a reporting subject. I liked, she was giving me interesting material. I liked talking to her. Svetlana worried to Nick on the phone about missing phone calls from her daughter, about a scrapped move to California that had caused her much distress. In the following clip, she's worrying about the original Vanity Fair piece. It's been 40 years, she says. Maybe I should sit quietly, you know, and not pop out. Many people have forgotten that I exist. Many people think that I'm dead long ago. Good. And <laughs> good. And, and you know, sometimes you want to be 
forgotten, you know, so that people don't bother you with their uh -huh. stupid ideas. Uh, and uh, we have uh, elections coming, so everybody is excited about that. More and more people are into elections. It doesn't excite me because I don't see one person whom I would like. So uh, maybe I should just sit quietly and not to pop out. Pop up, well, know. we'll see. The editors haven't, you know, I don't have their final version, so I should get that sometime in the next week. Svetlana was wary of the story, of editors getting it wrong. Now, you mentioned in your letter that, of course, there will be editors, of course, as we both Yes, know. there are editors. They're not going to say you're a millionaire. They're not going to have the old lies. <laughs> Do you have a chance to deny that, you know, that... My father never left anything for me. Oh, uh, that's in the article. Oh, it is. Yeah, that's definitely Good. in there. It's the first sentence. Well, they might throw this out. I, if they threw that out, then then I'll stop the article. But I think it's gonna. I, you know, I want to make people realize that, you know, you're a normal person. You're trying to make money like yeah. other people. It's not like there's money in Swiss banks. Well, they don't think that I'm I'm normal person like others. They think that I'm exactly like my father. And that absolutely, you know, makes me walk on the wall. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, but anyway, you will see, of course, the, what they will make with it. As they kept talking, the shape of a different story began to emerge. One of a deeply wounded figure whose father was literally Joseph Stalin a woman for whom a scorched-earth mentality had long ago become a vital defense mechanism. I'd written her a letter about the tender subject, and then she wrote me a letter saying I was a horrible person and that I had fallen into, you know, the same traps that everybody who ever wrote about her had fallen into, which is, you know, to use her as a way of trying to understand her father instead of looking at herself and her mother. I wrote back to her and apologized and then I vividly remember opening the mailbox in the foyer of our apartment building and it was thick. And I was like, oh great. She sent me something long and I opened it up and it was my letter unopened. She said, all your letters will be returned the same way, unopened and unread. It was crushing. And I remember going in and like my wife was like, you look ashen. And I showed her because A, it doesn't feel good to make anybody that angry. <laughs> Um, and you know she has you know, temper tantrums, and you, like she wasn't my mother. She's I don't have any I don't, I don't I don't owe her anything. She's not part of my life. Like you can sever that relationship, but it still feels crappy. I'm a middle child. I like to get along with everybody, and like I made this woman so angry. She sent me my letter unopened, and then it also meant you know like of course maybe sometime I thought I would write about her. Like okay, well I blew that, but then you know a few weeks later she sent me another letter apologizing, and then we were then we were back on. But I, I remember, I just remember, I remember being very shaken. What was interesting to me is she's deeply erratic, right? In a way, you can't blame her. Father Stalin, her father sent her first boyfriend to the gulag, right? So you can't blame her in some way. I was sympathetic to that part of her personality. About a year after his original piece was killed... Did you know Stalin's daughter lives out in a retirement home in the middle of Wisconsin? Nick began to crack the story further. It wasn't about the fallen from grace daughter of the Kremlin who spent all her money. It was about a woman 
who no one ever really cared to understand because of what she represented. They don't think that I'm a normal person. They think that I'm exactly like my father. Nick decided to go back to Vanity Fair one more time. I said, hey guys, I have a better idea. Like, I've gotten all this new material. Let's turn it into a 5,000 word piece. And they said, sure, that sounds great. And so I rewrote it and refiled it. And then in 2010, they killed the 5,000 word piece. Holy shit. So in a way, Vanity Fair killed it twice. Your entire life you've been told to save. But has anyone helped you figure out how to spend? With Fidelity Income Planning, get help creating a personalized plan for cash flow, even when you're not working. One that includes your 401k and all your other accounts. Make informed decisions that best fit your life ahead, whether one-on-one or through our planning tools. Learn more at fidelity.com slash income planning. Advisory services provided by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC for a fee. Brokerage services by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. True or false? Walmart has eye care. True. Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. This is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. After Nick's portrait of Stalin's daughter was killed for the second time, Nick got paid for his troubles. I was paid twice, two kill fees. My contract with Vanity Fair was for 5,000 words at $2.40 a word. Uh, So that would have been $12,000. And then I got a 50% kill fee, so I got $6,000 when the long story was killed. But the payday didn't suit the burn. The first Vanity Fair story had been a few hundred words. But this, this was a fully fleshed profile of someone he actually knew and cared about, someone with whom he had spent hours and years straining to understand. This wasn't just some hasty stitch job pulled from 34 minutes at a press junket. Thank you for calling. All right, well, it's good to talk to you. I'm looking forward to getting your, your, your latest letter. I always like getting letters from you. He had written Svetlana in all of her glory and rage and contradictions, and they had just said, no, thank you. I looked at the note and it was, it didn't, you know, it doesn't work with the mix. Advertising is down 30%. We have fewer features. It was just the story's not good enough. What was hard for me when the story was killed is that I knew I had a good topic, right? Hey guys, I discovered that Stalin's daughter lives in a cornfield in Wisconsin, right? That's interesting. And yet somehow I had taken that interesting fact. I had gone out and seen her. I had written all these letters and I still hadn't written something good enough, right? That's tough. It makes you think, gosh, I'm not very good at observing. I'm not very good at writing or I'm not very good at reporting. When you write a piece that's personal, you know, getting it killed has even higher stakes because in a way they're, you know, they're rejecting your story. They're rejecting your writing. They're rejecting your reporting, but they're also rejecting you in a small way. You know, the worst kind of story to kill is like a memoir about yourself. It's brutal. Like your life is not interesting enough or you haven't written it well enough. And the Svetlana story wasn't fully personal, but it was partly personal. After Vanity Fair dropped the axe on his story twice, 
Nick regrouped and eventually left his job at Wired. He'd later return as editor-in-chief. And his Svetlana story? Well, he left that in the rear view. When it was killed, I didn't keep working on it. I didn't touch it for four years. I didn't think about it as a piece. I didn't, I didn't work on it. I didn't revise it. And that's partly due to, you know, it's been killed by Vanity Fair. Maybe it's not that good. He went to The New Yorker, where he'd been hired to edit the Intellectual Magazine's website. So I had taken this job at The New Yorker where it had been made very clear to me that um, my job was to edit, not to write. And not to pitch his lovely balls of yarn. Nick and the magazine's longtime editor-in-chief, David Remnick, came to an agreement. You know, The New Yorker has a problem where it hires people to come in as editors, copy editors, fact checkers, photographers, and then everybody wants to write features for the magazine. And it's frustrating because it means they're distracted from the thing they're supposed to actually do. And so when I came in for my job, I essentially had to like promise in blood to Remnick you know, while sitting on his couch during the job interview that I was not going to pester him with my personal feature ideas. And he was going to hand me a stack of drafts and I was going to make those drafts better and then they were going to appear in the magazine. And that was the deal. So Nick put his head down. He edited pieces by heavyweights like Ken Oletta and Ryan Lizza. He watched the magazine win awards and he ran his miles, sometimes running to and from the office, commuting as exercise as clever time optimization hack and Svetlana and all of her drama receded into the background. On November 22nd, 2011, Svetlana died, colon cancer. She'd been mostly known as Lana Peters after her fourth husband, an American. Her New York Times obituary read, Lana Peters, Stalin's daughter, dies at 85. So I really didn't want to, I mean, I'd been in the job four years and I was exceptionally close to David and everybody. And I was still, I felt like, no, I'm not going to impose. I'm not going to write. I'm not going to present my feature idea. And then I finally did. And I can't remember exactly the sequence of events that led me to pitch it. I'm having a little bit of memory recalls happening right now. So it was in the fall, I guess it would have been the fall of 13. And Svetlana was now, had long, had long died. She'd been dead for a year. And one night I went into the Vanity Fair file and I remember looking at the Vanity Fair draft and changing it and just having one of those creative flurries where, you know, you're stalled for a long time and then suddenly you, you write something that's decent. One of the things that happened to me at The New Yorker is that I unquestionably got better at writing. I'm editing some of the best writers in the world. I'm really focused on trying to improve as a writer, and it's just such a part of the culture of that place. In any case, I think that by 2014, the reason why I brought it up, you know, four years after it got killed was more self-confidence in my abilities and then lots of confidence in the, in the story. And then also the fact that she had passed away and therefore wouldn't be reading it. And with her gone, it was much easier to write. When she was alive, I didn't want to write a story. But with her gone, I thought, okay, well, maybe I should do it. He wrote about Svetlana's wry sense of humor, her memories of her father and her mother, of her off-the-charts IQ, bad decisions, paranoia, love affairs, and strained relationships with her children. I wrote different versions of the stories for the different publications. I mean, certainly 
the version I wrote for Vanity Fair was angled more at what I thought Vanity Fair would like. Like there's a lot more sex and celebrity in that version. The New Yorker is, it's more narrative, it's more chronological, it's more emotional. He wrote about the letters, the emotional outbursts. He wrote it all, and he wrote it from his point of view. I transformed it so that much more of the story was about my relationship to her. And then I sent it to Amy Davidson, my very close colleague on the New Yorker website. And then I think she suggested, I suggested to her writing it as a three-part piece through the web. She said, make it one part. And then um, I must have taken it at some point to Daniel Zaleski, the features editor there. And then he must have said, take it to Remnick. And I must have taken it to Remnick. So it took a little while to like get the courage to even, you know, present it as a print feature to Remnick. Nick's nearly 7,000 word piece finally ran in the March 31st, 2014 issue of The New Yorker, along with a portrait of an unapologetic looking Svetlana wearing a black sweater. Honestly, she looks like a lot of fun to talk shit with. David Remnick, who was and still is the editor of The New Yorker, didn't respond to Kild's requests for interview. Uh, do you have other questions or, or what? I have a few other questions. I okay. Reread your long letter again. I just got your new letter too. Yes. It's a beautiful piece about a complicated relationship between a woman and her father, the past and the present, a journalist and his subject. When I read the final version again before this podcast, every time I read one of her letters, you know, it kind of lit up because I heard her voice is so wonderful, her insights are so powerful. In fact, when the CIA people called him, you know, I actually went through and I read one. I read the initial draft that I sent in. And in that draft, I included many more um, of the things that she wrote to me, like about my children, about my wife, about my life, about my personality flaws. And we took all those out. And I actually think that was the right choice. I wanted to um, ask how how is everything going with you? It's going very well. You know, I'm... I'm doing a lot of and I think we struck the right balance of having me as a, a character, but not being too much the central focus of it. Your entire life you've been told to save, but has anyone helped you figure out how to spend? With Fidelity Income Planning, get help creating a personalized plan for cash flow, even when you're not working. One that includes your 401k and all your other accounts. Make informed decisions that best fit your life ahead, whether one-on-one or through our planning tools. Learn more at fidelity.com slash income planning. Advisory services provided by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC for a fee. Brokerage services by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. True or false? Walmart has eye care. True. Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart.